Hey, hey, any youth leaders out there? Serving with youth in the church is probably one of the most enjoyable callings, but it brings with it a lot of responsibility. How do we effectively lead this rising generation? Well, I have good news for you. Leading Saints has organized the Young Saints Virtual Library, where we have 20 plus hours of presentations all about how to lead youth. We cover topics like how to help youth transition into adulthood, how to help them avoid loneliness, how to handle smartphones in class, and we even go over scientific data about how Latter-day Saint youth differ from other youth. If you'd like to review the Young Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash 1-4. So you're checking us out as maybe a potential podcast you could start listening to. I know many of you have been listening for a long time, but let me just talk to the newbies for a minute. What is Leading Saints? What are we trying to do here with this podcast? Well, let me explain. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization. A 501c3 is what they call it. And we have a mission to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, of course, often means in the context of a calling. It may mean in your local community, your work assignments. We've heard about our content influencing all sorts of leaders in all sorts of different contexts. We invite you to listen to this episode and maybe a few others of our 500 plus episodes that we have out there. Jump in and begin to learn and begin to consider some of these principles we talk about on the Leading Saints podcast. Here we go. All right, Keith, we're back in your office. It's like I was just here talking about your other book, and but you're a prolific writer, I guess. Well, welcome back. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> and uh, so we, last time I was here, we were talking about real versus rumor and this concept of the rumors and facts that we like to, just like any human organization has the you know, the different stories that we tell and sometimes they're not, they're not as accurate as we think they are or they're attributed to the wrong person, right? That the day is of the internet that we live in, right? So I will definitely link to that great episode and it's really impacted even things I say through this mic. I'm like, well, no, Keith would not be, would not be satisfied with me perpetuating wherever that came from because I don't know where it came from. That's (laughs) great. I'm glad I can sit on your shoulder. That's right. That's right. Keep an eye on it. (laughs) And now they come out with a new book called Making Sense of Your Patriarchal Blessing. So but you're a historian, right? So where did the itch come to write about patriarchal blessings? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the itch itself began in a personal way. You know, I received a blessing when I was 16 and I received it from my grandfather, who was a patriarch. He lived across the country. And so we had to make the special arrangements. And he had been a patriarch for 22 years before giving me my blessing that day. And for the next 15 years, he and I shared several conversations, but you know, before he passed just, and I was a curious kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, what's going on, grandpa? How does it work? And, you know, he would draw the line, say, I'm not interpreting it for you, but he was open to talking about the process. And so then here and there, you know, people would ask, you know, you do a talk in sacrament meeting on patriarchal blessings or whatever. And so I would go, hey, grandpa, I have to give a talk. And I'd learn things. And But then it was 
Eight years ago, when I became the director of the Church History Library, one of the things in the collection are millions of patriarchal blessings. Oh, yeah. And, and so, people can like email the church or, or fill out a form and get their or get ancestors or their own patriarchal blessings. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so the staff here was building that online system uh, whereby patriarchs submit blessings and people request copies. And we were working all of that out. And so in those settings, I just had lots of opportunities to talk with patriarchs and local leaders and general church leaders and the staff here. All of these people are really smart and they're just kind of, I kept thinking about the topic and I kept learning lots of things. And then it just kind of all kind of came together and said, well, I've, I felt like, wow, I've learned a lot. Maybe I should put it together in yeah. some way and share it. Yeah. Now, as I read this book, it's not a history book, even though you're a historian. That's right. right? What, what's the audience or what angle were you coming at? Yeah. And so I think my angle here is that it is a devotional book. It's meant to help someone. I mean, the starting point is, I've received a blessing, now what? Mm-hmm. Uh, lot, the Many other books on the market are kind of uh, encouraging people to get a blessing and, and get them excited and tell them to to look forward to it. And this book begins with, okay, you've got one. Now what do you do with it? How do you make sense of it? How do you use it throughout your life. And so but part of my approach to that angle was, well, people have been getting blessings like this for almost 200 years. And so how have they done it? If I'm trying to figure things out in my own blessing, which I was as a 16-year-old, and I still am and in, uh, these many years later, maybe, you know, we generically say, oh, the lessons of history help us things. Well, maybe there are stories from our own history of people And they have to be from our history because this is such a unique religious experience. And so that kind of led me into historical research in people's journals and diaries. And for the book, I didn't read everybody's blessing. That's sacred. That that only is for the individual. But I read where people who had written about it or talked about it or shared about it and and then tried to come up with these lessons about how to make sense. Yeah. And, you know, this whole concept I've been thinking about it as I've been reading the book is that this whole concept of patriarchal blessings is so unique to our faith tradition. You know, we have several things that you may find in other, in some form in other denominations, but, and it's almost to the point of like, it's almost its own island where, you know, it's not necessarily directly attached to temple work or directly attached to priesthood or, I mean, I guess, again, there's these connections but, you know, even the patriarch, he's like, it's a priesthood office, but he's not like in the, the quorum of the patriarchs or something, you know, in the area. And it's almost like this retirement calling, you know, that bless their hearts, it's the wise sage that we, we turn to for this. But it really is a unique experience we have in our faith. It really is. And I also think that today in the 21st century, patriarchal blessings do something for us that other people in the religious landscape or religious marketplace are looking for. You know, I, I commonly hear people say, well, I don't participate in organized religion, but I'm just spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I think patriarchal blessings highlight why that's not a very good way to think about it, because it has to be institutional. You need somebody who has the keys to authorize somebody to give these kinds of blessings. And what results is something that's just profoundly personal and personalized and spiritual. And and so it just kind of reminds people that people say, well, I want to be close to God. Well, God sent his son who created a church. Yeah. <laughs> so that's part of, and they come together. And this becomes one of those moments. And a lot of people I've talked to, especially people, you know, maybe having challenging time with their faith or their, or their journey, patriarchal blessings are one of the places where they say, well, no, that I really felt something there. Maybe, you know, on the back row of Elders Quorum, I don't feel much. But that was one moment where I knew yeah. 
yeah. that God was aware of me. Yeah. And so there's something really powerful in this this unique experience that we have. For sure. So you don't talk about this in the book as much as far as the history of, but since you're a historian and we're, we're in the church history library here, I'm curious, like, what got us to this point? I mean, you hear stories about Joseph Smith Sr. being the first patriarch and then Hiram and, and on and on to the point that the church used to have this general patriarch. I forget exactly what we called him, but, and then that was done away with. And so what context could you give us as far as history is concerned? Yeah. Well, you gave the summary. Great. Oh, good. good job. <laughs> I've been listening. Uh, it's wearing off on you here in the church history library. <laughs> You're, so, so yeah, Joseph Smith Sr. becomes the first and the title patriarch does refer in part to, to, to part of the original mission. You know, this is early on when Joseph is thinking about families and connections. And it's not quite before Elijah. I mean, it's before Elijah has returned, but it's in this moment when they're starting to think. And one of the things they noticed is that there are people who don't have fathers. And so as priesthood authority is given and fathers start to give blessings or healings or things like that, there's this kind of a, what about the people who who don't? And so, so part of the context is that Joseph Smith Sr., can give blessings to the fatherless. And in the big kind of Christian context, this is like James talking about care of the fatherless and the widows. And this is part of the concern. How does everyone in the kingdom have access to blessings and insight? And so, so there's a thread of this that, that goes in, a, in an inherited way. After Joseph Sr., it becomes Hiram. After Hiram passes to William Smith, but even during Joseph Smith Sr.'s ministry, they start to call other local patriarchs because he can't be everywhere. And so, including in England, as the apostles are there, we get in the 1840s, we get a, a patriarch in England who's doing this. So it's, a, it's an international thing from, from the beginning. And so it, it's both. It's a kind of a blessing that's available locally. And there is a, over time, they call it different things, church patriarch, general patriarch, presiding patriarch. Mm. Into the 20th century, it's mostly Smith descendants. There are a few cases that aren't, but mostly Smith descendants who occupy the role. And by the 50s and 60s, the church patriarch is now, starts to be involved in kind of general church trainings, general conferences in the 50s and 60s were larger events, multi-days. There'd be sessions for different organizations and things. And so there start to be sessions for patriarchs and, and training and the church patriarch helps in those ways. Church patriarch continues to travel to places where there isn't a patriarch, some, you know, an organized stake or something. So we see some of that in the 20th century, but ultimately it's in the late 1970s when they're, you know, the under president Kimball, they start looking at all kinds of things in the church's structure and how, and how do we grow and how do we take the gospel to the world and how do we you know, this is the same setting where they get rid of assistance to the 12 and they, ha they, they build a, a new 70 that's different than the 19th century 70 that become uh, part of the work. And so in, in these rethinkings, they, they rethink church meetings and go to the consolidated schedule. But it's right in this moment where one of their conclusions is that the work of patriarchs and patriarchal blessings, two things happen. One, that it gets assigned to the president of the Quorum of the 12, that becomes the person responsible. And then two, that it really works through a stake presidents. And so we begin the current kind of relationship where stake president reviews blessings and counsels with the patriarch, but it is still a really kind of a one-on-one -on -one role. I mean, the, yeah. the patriarch's the only one in the stake and the stake president's the only one who kind of reads the blessings and gives counsel and 
And so it's a lonely role. Yeah. And that's kind of been its structure the late 70s. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I sort of it sort of has uh, some echoes of a almost a baby's blessing where it's not a saving ordinance, but it's, you know, it's done under, through keys and through, you know, authority and whatnot. But uh, then this may seem like it's a very basic question. And, and just like a baby's blessing, it's like, well, why do we do a baby blessing? Well, you know, it helps us create a record. That's sort of an administrative thing we do. And then, you know, it's just good to give some blessing at the beginning of a life as they begin, you know, immortality. And then so how would you answer like, and we get the like, patriarchal blessing is personal scripture, you could say. It gives people encouragement and life guidance, something to reflect on. But why a patriarchal blessing? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I like the comparison to an infant blessing. And this is just me speaking totally personally. Yeah. One of the things I've read, you know, in, in old literature and instruction about patriarch, or I'm sorry, about infant blessings, that it feels like we lose a little. I think today... We often turn them into, this is a blessing about the kid, but the baby can't hear you, doesn't understand you, <laughs> like you, you name all these things and and, you, and yeah, they, they can happen. But earlier infant blessings were also about the the mother and her safe delivery and mm. expressing gratitude for the child. And, and you think about 19th century context when so many children die. And so, so that even the setting where we normally do infant blessings at a fast and testimony meeting. We've come together, fasting, prayerful, grateful. And then infant blessings, I think, to me, are more communal in the sense that if the father's inspired to bless this baby, to gain a testimony and learn and grow, well, who's going to do that other than the people in the room who are going to become the primary teacher and the young men's uh, Mm -hmm. president and they're like, an infant blessing in many ways is tying the whole community together to say, we're going to, uh, to help this child. We're grateful that the child is here and we're, and we're excited to raise the child. And I think a patriarchal blessing then is it comes, there's not a defined age. You know, people have gotten them as young as, I mean, I found one in church history, they were eight days old. Oh, it was really? the patriarchal blessing that was recorded and uh, and so they, they collapsed it. Well, let, let's just, we're going to do it. Let's just do it all at once, right? Oh Infant blessing and, and patriarchal blessing. But often they will be, you know, I mean, Spencer W. Kimball was 11 when he got his 19th century. We'll see 10, 11, 12. Today, it's a little bit older, but we do lots of things older now. We stay in school longer in the 21st century. We marry later. So, mm-hmm. so in some ways, the age has pushed back just in line with culture and where we, we place people. But it happens at a time in culture where people are about to start making decisions. They're also about to start, well, here's the way I like to think about the transition. We often think about it, I think, in an unhelpful way. And we say, oh, I've had this child that will become independent and I'm launching them on their own. The reason I think that's unhelpful is if you've spent your whole life training to be independent, then you get really frustrated when you learn that you can't do everything in life. Mm -hmm. And so I think a better way to think about it is, you know, you come into earth, you're totally dependent on earthly parents, and now you're about to go out and you, it's time for you to really be dependent on the Lord. And that's what I try and teach my own children is you're not becoming independent, you're transferring dependence. And now you really have to have a tighter relationship with the Lord because I'm not going to be there to make your dinner or clean up yeah. after you or do this. And you're going to have to, the Lord will have to guide you and help you. And so that's one way that I like to think about it is, is this moment where this, where a person 
And today the handbook will guide that, you know, if you're getting close to your mission or military service or marriage, that that is a time to go in and, and, and receive a blessing. And that feels like a time where you're really making this transition where now it's going to be me and the Lord and we're, we're going off. And so I think it, it comes at a moment where you really build that relationship and make it and kind of there's a handoff. Yeah. So. I love that framing that, you know, you've gotten father's blessings all these years and now you need a heavenly father blessing to, to keep you going as you're now transitioning into life, right? Yeah. yeah. So let's uh, reach back to some of your uh, real verse rumor concepts. Is sure. There, are there any apocryphal concepts or stories or things you want to shut down right here now about patriarchal <laughs> blessings or anything come to mind? Well, you know, uh, Harold B. Lee used to tell a story that that people heard there was something in his patriarchal blessing and he would just, he would always shut that one down and say, no, that's not in my blessing. But maybe in a more general way, there is often both kind of interest or fear. People hear like, oh, well, somebody's blessing said this or that. And then they try to extrapolate it to the church. And I think the thing to shut down there is to say, patriarchal blessings are personal. They're mm -hmm. for individuals. If the Lord has a message for the church about the second coming <laughs> or financial hard yeah. times, or that's going to come through a different channel. Yeah. And it's not going to come to one random person, three wards over, who's in the same pickleball group as your brother-in-law. <laughs> that's not the way that the message is going to come. <laughs> right. But there is kind of this like, ooh, well, I heard this and I heard yeah. that. And, yeah. and it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Right, right. And I've, I've heard, you know, the stories of you know, somebody gets a patriarchal blessing and that says you'll serve a mission in a strange land. And then they're like, they die in a car accident. And, you know, and so there's almost like, oh, prophesied of the death. Like, I don't know if that's helpful. Like, that's not, you know, we sort of read into these things that they mean more than they do. Or sometimes they're, or sometimes somebody does say, no, you will serve a mission and, but they die or something happens and they don't. And then we think, what well, we're wrong or this wasn't supposed to happen. Right. And, and we kind of yeah. tie ourselves in knots a little bit. I think so. And, and the, the very first chapter of the book starts right there with, to just emphasize the interpretation of blessing belongs to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And even people, I mean, you can't be the armchair quarterback and think, well, this is my child. I interpret it. Or even, you know, a family member passes away and you inherit the blessing and you read it and you say, oh, all these things were undone to interpret that. And so... So either way, rather than if we're saying, oh, it, it shouldn't have happened or it should have. Yeah, it's between the person and the Lord. Yeah. So. Yeah. Is there anything to, you know, there's this concept sometimes where, you know, even when I interview people, they'll say like, they'll almost hesitate and be like, oh, I probably shouldn't say this. But in my patriarchal blessing, it says as if there's a, this unwritten rule of you're not supposed to talk about it publicly. Right. And maybe, it, you know, there's been quotes and things encouraging that. But what what's to that concept? Anything come to mind? Yeah, no, I, uh, there is a written component to that in the current handbook and past ones. It, it's counseled against sharing them publicly. I think sometimes people interpret that to mean I can't tell anyone. And so the, the handbook does talk about, you know, uh, family members or as you feel prompted to do so. Certainly in the history of the church, different church leaders have felt prompted to share sometimes direct quotes in general conference. President Hinckley was one. He read a, a line from his blessing and, and talked about it. Others have paraphrased it. Some people feel more comfortable not quoting it, but saying, well, here's generally a thing. And I think in all of those, again, it kind of goes back to your relationship with God. And, uh, and, and I think the bigger picture is, you know, when God gives us light, if we take care of it and respect it, then we get more light. And mm -hmm. that light grows and grows until it becomes a perfect day is the promise. And so it's just kind of how do I treat this in a way that the Lord knows I value it 
and then that I'm eligible for more. Yeah. What about the concept of just the, obviously patriarchs are mortal men and, you know, they're, I don't know, sometimes we have a tendency just because Latter-day Saints, but we're humans, we like to bring mysticism into things of like, there's something magical happening here that, you know, this person says these words in a certain way that, so, but nonetheless, I guess I'm getting to like, just with leadership in general, sometimes we're, our local bishop doesn't meet our expectations or sort of disappointed and that sort of dynamic can happen with a patriarch too. It's like, oh, well, I was sort of hoping for more, a little more articulate language, but you know, I didn't get that through this patriarch and, or there might be this feeling of, I don't want, I don't want to go to that one. I want to go to another one or one. Right. Anyways, what comes to mind with, with that dynamic? Yeah. I think it's important to remember that like patriarchal blessings are like other forms of revelation in that they're communicated from heaven to mortal people in a lot of different ways. And so we shouldn't kind of try and make a generalization of this is how they work. But at one end of kind of a, maybe a spectrum of possibilities, it is very clear, and it has been from the beginning, that a patriarch is not just like a dictaphone from heaven. Mm-hmm. He doesn't just kind of plug into some like radio station and open his mouth and mm-hmm. he's, he's just, there's no role from him. He's just simply translating it or transmitting it from heaven because the patriarch is involved. The patriarch's worthiness matters. The patriarch is thinking and, and paying attention to the spirit. And so, so that's one extreme that's wrong. I think the other extreme that's wrong is to say, well, None of the words are specific because there are certain times where patriarchs will feel a word or a phrase or maybe even a couple of sentences. There are other times where patriarchs will say things like they see a picture and they describe it. And so they may see in a visionary way a scene, but the description of the scene is that person's, you know, ability with words and adjectives. And and yeah, someone may have more flowery adjectives than others but they're trying to describe a scene. And so I think both kind of approaches are helpful to make sense of your blessing. Sometimes, you know, pay attention to the words and the word choice, especially if the words, you know, echo scripture mm-hmm. or a scripture character. You know, if it's going to, if it says something like, you know, you will be like Ruth, well, then you better be opening your Old Testament and reading <laughs> Ruth and learning what you can, you know, and that, that really matters. But I think it's also helpful to approach it in terms of concepts and, you know, maybe not get hung up on a specific word or, but like, what's the concept here? What's the big picture here? Because that's, you know, sometimes we have a bad metaphor. We assume a patriarchal blessing is like a map, like it's going to show me everything on the landscape and where to turn and where's the stop sign. And, mm-hmm. and that's when we get really focused on like, did it say this thing? Or people get really upset. Well, it didn't mention something. That matters. You know, it didn't mention a mission. It didn't mention marriage. Does that mean I'll never get married? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It mm-hmm. just means that more like the Liahona, and it's not telling you every bump in the road, but it sometimes the Liahona gave them really clear instruction that made them quake and tremble. And sometimes it was just more general, like, yeah, go, keep going. And I think the patriarchal blessing is like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Just speaking to like church leaders, like, how could they? I think of a a bishop, for instance, obviously working close with the youth and how could they better go about just encouraging patriarchal blessings or bringing more meaning to it rather than this is just sort of what you do now in your, this point in your life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely don't turn it into a checklist. Like, uh, you know, everybody who reach X age, you go ask. The handbook outlines two criteria only. You have to be worthy and you have to understand how important it is. And that's it. And the Mm -hmm. bishop is the one who, who makes both of those determinations. And so, 
you know, uh, some people w- will understand that it's important and really want it when they're 12 or 13. Others, you know, it might not matter too much until they're, they're about to go on a mission. And then they're like, oh, yeah, maybe I better, you know. And so <laughs> I think part of what the bishop discerns is how well they understand the value of it. So I think it's great, you know, probably not every interview, but, you know, maybe once every two years, you know, the bishop should have just asked. And probably it's describing it maybe a little of of what it is. I also think it's great to do activities where, you know, the uh, you can invite the patriarch to talk about patriarchal mm-hmm, blessings yeah. and just the youth, you know, though sometimes uh, lately they've been inviting patriarchs to sit on the stand at state conferences and that's good. The youth can start to see a person. But I think, you know, if you're in uh, somebody's home and you have cinnamon rolls and the patriarch uh, shares some thoughts, that makes it even more real. Like, oh, here's here's a person. And I felt really good in that little fireside with the patriarch. So I'm now I'm looking forward to my personal opportunity. And so yeah. I think parents can talk about it. Uh, they should talk about it. Again, not all the time, but, you know, at, at certain intervals. And then definitely teaching the principles of revelation. Teach the story of the Liahona long before they get there because then when they get it, you can say, "You now you've got it. It's going to be like a Liahona. Mm. Okay, and now I've got something to go on. So I think there yeah, are lots of ways we can be preparing them for revelation and this this relationship. Yeah, I like that if we're not, you know, we don't have to hammer every every lesson or every interview, but just sort of keeping it top of mind every once in a while. I remember as a ninth grader, you know, sitting in seminary class and, you know, the patriarchal blessing concept came up and my teacher asked, who in here has their patriarchal blessing? And I remember a few raised their hands and I thought, wait a minute, I thought you can get it at this age, you know? And, and so it's almost like gauging that if you sense that maybe a youth is like, they're, they're really captivated by this, they're energized by it, they're intrigued by it, then, hey, my, why don't we loop the bishop in and talk about it and see if it would make sense to move forward to that and, and do it. You know? Yeah. And it can start by talking and start by reading things There, you know, there are short things that the church magazines regularly publish a little, you know, every two or three years, yeah. a kind of preparing for your blessing. So there, there are definitely things that you can share and read and talk about and, yeah. and, and help them, help them be ready. Yeah. So you mentioned the patriarch sitting on the stand concept. It's triggered this other thing. I don't even know if you'll have a, a straight answer for this and I don't think it's addressed in the handbooks, but from what I've learned and understood, obviously we call a bishop, Bishop Frankum, or a stake president, President Frankum. But it's not like a title, like you don't say Patriarch Frankum or Patriarch Jones. Yeah. Have you heard that? Real versus rumor. I've, Let's have it. <laughs> I've heard both. Uh, and, okay. I, and you're right. I don't think I have actually seen something written either way. Uh, sometimes I've heard them, I've heard it in the third person, like the Patriarch right, or yeah. Patriarch so-and-so. But I've heard it less like walking right up to their face and saying, hey, yeah. Hey, patriarch so-and-so or brother so-and-so. In my case, I just called him grandpa. But, <laughs> yeah, but, easy. but yeah, it's, um, and I, and I think in that way, it's like other priesthood offices. We don't call someone deacon oh, yeah. so-and-so or You're teacher right. so-and-so or high priest so-and-so, but there are certain times where yeah. the office of elder is sometimes appropriate to say as a yeah. title and, and other times where it's a calling of president that it's a, a respectful title and, and Bishop is the crossover that it's both an office and a, and a, title, and a yeah. calling that, yeah, yeah. that becomes a, a title. So interesting. All right. Well, yeah, we don't have a straight up rule for all offices or callings yeah. or. Yeah. Interesting. And some callings get no title. That's know? right. So that's right. <laughs> if you're the ward organist, you have no title. It's just like, Hey, play this now. <laughs> that's right. We should come together and think of an awesome, you know, your highness or something, you know, that's good. Awesome. That's good. What about our 
ancestors' patriarchal blessings. So it's obviously you can go, you can request those. And you talk about in the, in the book, this concept of sometimes we are talked in about in our parents or grandparents or whatever. And it makes me think of, I think my mother's mentioned that in her patriarchal blessings says something like your children will be known in the world. And to my siblings, we've served all over the world in, uh, you know, different missions in Portugal and France. Oh, that's and, great. But also I'm known in the world through this podcast, you know, and so yeah. it's, there's sort of a double meaning, sometimes triple meaning, but why should we be interested in our parents or ancestors blessings? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think the best way to answer that is to just say right out that we're going to rub right up against one of the articles of faith of modern American culture Uh-oh. Uh, and even kind <laughs> of Western it. civilization, I'm leaning in, this is good. <laughs> which is we have this kind of sense of radical individualism. Mm. Like I'm the center of the universe. It's all about me. I'm making the choices. And even as Latter-day Saints, we'll go grab doctrine that we think supports this part of our culture. <laughs> like agency is about me making a choice. And, uh, oh. and, we, and we really put ourselves at the center of the story, which the center of the Christian story always has been Jesus. Right. <laughs> he's the path. He's the way. He's the truth. We're saved on his name. And so we, we end up in trouble when we make ourselves through our own culture, the center of the story. But I think patriarchal blessings help us remember that we're connected to other people. And Joseph Smith just said it straight out. We can't be saved without our dead. And so we're connected. And so what one of the implications is that promises that get made to ancestors do have fulfillments because ancestors do things that set up their family, that set up their traditions, their own culture, they're, they're shaping family culture, they're, and they're passing on both genetic legacies, but also legacies of faith and mm-hmm. testimony. And so, so, yeah, promises that get made. And you, you gave a great example, you know, about, of, a, of an ancestor and a promise. And so, and so that is the reason behind, you know, this is the president of the Quorum of the Twelve who oversees patriarchal blessings in the past has authorized that people can receive their direct line ancestor. So it's not branches, it's not uncle or cousins, got to be a, a direct ancestor, but also a direct descendant who has deceased. If you have a child who has passed away uh, mm-hmm. or, a, or a spouse who's passed away, those can be requested as well through the church website. And yeah, it's making that connection and seeing this, you know, when, when uh, Wilford Woodruff announced that they would change the way they would do sealings because you used to be sealed more laterally in kind of a kinship way to lots of different people. And in 1894, Wilford Rudolph said, we're doing it wrong. We need to have people sealed to their parents, sealed mm-hmm. to their grandparents. And he used an imagery that I think uh, is really beautiful. He said, we well, need to create a great chain of the whole human family all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so I think patriarchal blessings and these promises that extend beyond generations are part of what strengthens that chain. And, you know, and there are readings of Malachi's promise that isn't just that your hearts are turned to the fathers. That's nice. Oh, I know who they are. But it's turned to the promises made to the fathers. And a patriarchal blessing is a place where, and there are other places, covenants, but it's one of the places where promises are made to our Mm. fathers. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah. And there is, I remember my grandfather, he died when my mom was 17 of cancer. And so I never met him, but to sit down 
with his patriarchal blessing or there's this like personal, like it's a, it's a spirit. It was a spiritual experience for me that I, I try and turn to, I probably should do that more often, but man, I just, it's almost as if he's sitting next to me and think, yeah, this is me. Cause it's so yeah. personal. Right. And you can connect with these ancestors on a, on a different level by doing that. So well, that's a great story. Great experience. And so it's only those that are in our direct line that yes. we can request from the church and, but we can't like get president Hinckley's patriarchal blessing or anything. Well, if he's your grandfather, you oh, sure, could, yeah, sure, but yeah, generally no. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. and I think uh, sometimes they're they're quoted in Ensign articles or things that yeah, sometimes biographers, stories, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, and again, if you're the person and you've hired a biographer, then then it is something you can share. Sometimes people will share them in a in a talk or something like yeah. that. They're, on the Joseph Smith Papers website, we did get permission to share some of the blessings that Joseph Smith Sr. gave, hmm. just part of the history. So Joseph Smith's blessing is there. Emma Smith's blessing is there. And so there are a few occasions where we've oh, cool. we've released some, but generally it's for the person and their, yeah. their lineal family. Yeah. Anything to mention as far as like the, the lineage, obviously that's a huge component of patriarchal blessing is, uh, is being, and what's the word like uh, not, I don't know, finding out the lineage of, of each individual, anything like uh, from a, a context of like communicating the importance of a patriarchal blessing or whatnot. Sometimes it's just sort of cool. Like I'm on team Ephraim, like, you know, yeah, <laughs> right, sure. right. And, and we, at the same time, we don't know what to do with it or whatever. So and, any thoughts come to mind around the lineage? Yeah. Well, since we've already started pushing back against our culture, let's All keep right, going. Let's do it. I think there is a cultural reading of lineage that we've done poorly. And that is, that we've made it, we've tried to read it as literal, as some literal thing happening. Like mm. either I'm a direct descendant of the name that's declared there, or I'm somehow adopted. Like this, the, my blessing is the formal adoption paper that now I, I am the, the descendant of that person. And there are people who talk in that way in, in the past, in our history, 1920s or 30s. You can go find statements like that. But I think the the bigger view, the better view, and one that has been shared, uh, especially recently by President Nelson, by President Oaks, is that this is not a biological or a literal connection. It's a spiritual connection. It's a symbolic connection. And if we think about God's mission is to save the whole human race, and one of the both uh, a vehicle, but also a metaphor is that we're gathering into the house of Israel. And so, yes, the house of Israel, the family of Israel, it wasn't a literal family and actual mm -hmm. covenants were made to them. But those covenants are also available to every other of the 8 billion people on the earth. And yeah. and so, so our lineage helps orient. And I think it does two things for us. It helps orient us to, well, it's the connection H yeah. here. You're the connected, chain, right? yeah. you're connected to Abraham and this family and these promises and this covenant. And it also, I think can prompt us as we study. And, you know, you don't want to get too literal because some of these people sold their brother into slavery. <laughs> so this isn't like yeah. some kind of a predestination that you're going to sell your sibling, right? That's the wrong way to read it. <laughs> but if we read the way the characters appear in scripture, you know, Israel gives blessings to his children before his death, but then Moses references those and kind of extends those later as they get to the promised land. And so I think, uh, and then, you know, New Testament writers talk about some of these characters, I think. So I think in that bigger version, but it's not, 
there are people who will speak or write and, and create some kind of a hierarchy of, of lineage, you know, this, mm-hmm. and they'll say, and they'll try and map it. Well, this tribe goes to this part of the world, but what inevitably they're mapping on their own cultural hierarchies because mm-hmm. uh, I'm in the good tribe and other people are in the bad tribe. <laughs> like that's the way it always comes out. Yeah. I'm the chosen but, one. Right? But there's not a chosen one. We're all God's children. Yeah. The, the whole point of this is that we all get connected. So that if we as humans then go and say, my tribe is better than your tribe, we've just defeated the whole The whole really beautiful thing that God is doing is connecting us as a family on earth, like we were a family in heaven. And then we're going to come in and say, well, no, I'm chopping this up and, and my part is better. Like We just missed, yeah. the, we missed the whole yeah. thing. People even push back and they say, well, what about... Well, it talks about blood and bloodlines. You know, my patriarch said, you're from the bloodline of so-and-so. And sometimes I just kind of laugh. and I think, have you ever read the scriptures? It feels like blood is the biggest symbol in all of scriptures. Yeah, they kill some animals and they shed blood. Uh-huh. But if, when we're talking about Jesus's blood and we're talking about the Passover and we're talking about the sacrament, blood is a symbol. And don't run around and try and make symbols into something really narrow and keep it big and yeah. glorious and wonderful. This is the God of the universe trying to tell you more information about yourself. Don't yeah. run around and say, okay, here's what it means. This yeah. narrow little thing. Yeah, yeah. This is all it can mean, God. God is trying to tell you a whole lot more yeah. than you're trying to hear. And I, I think you use the, the term a lot, the, the, the mystery in, in the book. That's right. It's almost like, again, it's not, we can't take these literal, but I love just how God works through these things. It's almost like this invitation, like step into my mystery of who I think you are. And I'm going to bring more meaning rather than bloodline. You know, there it is, period. That's what I mean. But I know, like, I want you to step into that mystery of what does that word mean? And what do you think I'm trying to communicate to you through that word? Right. Yeah. And we, in our culture, use mystery to mean something spooky or nefarious (laughs) or a crime is a mystery. But in the scriptures, When God talks about mysteries, it just means things he knows that we don't know. That's what a mystery of Mm -hmm. God is. They're the things he knows. And God tells us over and over in the scriptures that he wants to tell us the things he knows. He wants us to prepare to receive a gift of power. He wants us to prepare to receive the companionship of the Holy Ghost that can tell us the truth of all things. He wants to tell us things. And so, yeah, I think seeing your blessing as a mystery in this sense it's an invitation from God to learn more about you and your relationship with him. And so sometimes I think we treat our blessing and the scriptures, when we're looking for guidance in the scriptures, we treat them like a destination. Like, okay, I'm having trouble. I'm going to open my blessing. And somewhere there's going to be a sentence in there that's the answer. And that's the destination view. When I get there, I'll find it and that'll solve my thing. I think we need to Think about the scriptures and our, our patriarchal blessings as a doorway. When I want to find God, he's given me a personal doorway. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it out. I'm going to read it. I'm going to ponder the things he's told me. And then through the Holy Ghost, I'm going to be taken into places where he has more yeah. to tell me. Yeah. And, that, and, you know, just especially learning from President Nelson and other prophets, like we worship a God of invitations, you know, and, and some of them may, and I've had this feeling at times or some paragraphs of my blessing where I'm just like, pretty run of the mill. Like I don't, nothing to get here. And I wish that there's a little bit more here, but it's almost like this invitation, like, oh, you think this is run of the mill, like step into this. I invite you into this blessing and I want to, I want to take you on a tour of what I think of you. You know, it's yeah. really Well, and I think a really great illustration of that is in the Doctrine and Covenants. 
very early on. I'll let your listeners go find it. We'll make it mysterious for them. <laughs> but there are two sections back to back that are given to two brothers, same family, and they are word for word the same, except for the name of the brother. So not only do we have these two revelations that are identical, we canonized both of them. We didn't oh. just canonize one yeah. with a little footnote that says, and there's a double. Uh-huh. We canonized both of them. I think there's a lesson there because mm-hmm. sometimes people will say, oh, it, it feels run of the mill or it feels cookie cutter or it feels, uh, you know, not personal. And I think that's the destination view that says, well, this text looks like that text or it doesn't fit. It's not the doorway view that mm-hmm. says, God's inviting you to learn more. Come, come to him. I mean, that's what, that's what he's always asking. Come follow me. Yeah. Come unto me. Draw near unto me. The, the, a patriarchal blessing is a manifestation yeah. of that plea to come and learn more. Yeah. And, and that doorway is uh, interpreted differently in different stages of life. Like when someone maybe reads their blessing as a soon to uh, be missionary, as opposed to a three-year bishop, uh, you may find different meaning and purpose in that. So again, we're just going back and reviewing it within those different contexts. All right. Off the wall question. I have okay. to get your historic real verse rumor concern. You talk about bloodlines. I've heard, and we can cut this out if you really don't know the answer. It's <laughs> sort of off the wall. I've heard like people say that like, no, Joseph Smith, his bloodline is a literal bloodline to Ephraim or uh, whatever. Uh, have you heard anything like that? I haven't heard okay. that. And rumor, marked rumor. <laughs> Mark rumor and also mark it as kind of impossible to verify. Yeah. You could talk to people in the family history department who will know more about this, but generally we just don't have very good human records yeah. beyond, you know, the 1400s. Uh, and even when you get into Kings, which everybody likes to do, most of those are made up by, <laughs> by the, the, because they're trying oh, to invent, no fun, Keith. they're on. trying to invent some kind of thing, but, but there's just not data. There's yeah. just not data that yeah. takes the 8 billion people in the world and traces them to a nomadic right. farming and herding agricultural society <laughs> of, you know, 4,000 years ago. Just, right. Right. Yeah. We and just don't have those records. We kind of set ourselves up for disappointment sometimes. It's like, well, I mean, like if, we, if you look at this logically, could that bloodline really reach upstate New York, you know, Sharon, Vermont and, you know, 18, whatever. And like, let's not even worry about that. But the point being is he was a prophet and uh, he had the keys and he was part of the house, house of Israel because of this gathering that's happening. Right. Yeah. And, and it's probably, it probably just comes from people kind of misreading the old Testament to think, oh, that prophecy is inherited. Yeah. But if you read the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Book of Mormon more closely, you see God just calls whoever he needs. Uh, It's not limited. And that's the point of the gospel. It's not limited. It is for all of God's children. Yeah. Well, obviously, and and you mentioned it again, this would be a decent book to give to maybe someone who just received their patriarchal blessing and who's, again, trying to make sense of their patriarchal blessing and how to use it, uh, how how to leverage it in their spiritual journey and whatnot to is that maybe a, this could be great in the bishop office library that he can lend out copies and things like that? I think that would be great. I probably have a conflict of interest in <laughs> fully <true>. in fully <laughs> answering that question. But I would say this, that I did prepare it and write it from that standpoint of you got your blessing, now what? And the book kind of unfolds in a kind of reasoned way to think through things. So it begins with understanding God's will and the mysteries then it moves into the kind of the text. How do you interpret the text itself and treat it like scripture? It talks about timing. And then it also talks about conditions. One of the things that blessings do is kind of identify these are things you need mm-hmm. to do to be ready. Yeah. But then the, the book ends 
with a chapter called uh, Peace Without Clarity, because one of the things that happens as we kind of work through what the text means, and maybe the time has passed or hasn't passed, or sometimes we get to a point where it isn't clear anymore. And I think one of the important things to take away is that God does also offer us peace without clarity. We often want to link the two together. You know, peace is when there's no war. That makes sense. Or peace is when we've built, turned our swords into plowshares. But Jesus also offers peace that passeth understanding or peace that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And the, the Prince of Peace offers that too. And I think that's an important part of reading it is, is recognizing that some things might not make sense. And one, I do have a little disclaimer that the, many of the stories I tell, and I share stories from more than three dozen people who are trying to, from our history, who've worked through things and try to understand their blessing, but they all have one tremendous advantage over us and that they're looking back on their lives and yeah. they have their blessing. They've seen their lives. They've seen things unfold. And they're the ones who, who identify, oh, I misunderstood this. And now I learned, I grew closer to God. Well, we don't have that advantage, but we're all still in the middle of it. And sometimes it still looks blurry and sometimes it doesn't bring peace, but it can bring peace, but maybe not without clarity. And as we get through and as we, as we draw closer to God, we'll see things differently. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the youngest blessing that you found was eight days old. Is yeah. that right? Uh, what was the oldest that you found? Anything come you to know, mind? I mean, I do share a story in the book of a man who was in his 80s and he was living in Switzerland. He'd been a member of the church for decades, but this is, he's living through the Cold War. And so he gets this promise uh, late in his life that he should do temple work and promise kind of counsel. And so, so, he, and part of his reaction is I'm really old and I have bad health and I can't travel to a temple. And, but anyway, he, I won't give away the story, yeah, but it's a happy ending. But he's, <laughs> he's, it's, it is very late in his life where he, wow. where he, you know, I mean, and, and that's what it, if, if you're, th again, if you're thinking about like a map, you think like what's left for me later in uh -huh. my life. But if you're thinking about it like a doorway to knowing God, well, then you want that as anytime you can get a doorway to draw closer yeah. to God. And yeah. So, and it's never the, to the 99 year old just says, you'll probably die in the next few years to the end, you know, like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there's always more that God has to, to tell. Us and we that. continue to exist yeah. beyond death. And some of the promises find their yeah. fulfillments there that's, as well. That's the beauty of it. Any other, like just from their historian perspective of stories or, you know, maybe some that aren't apocryphal that have good resource <laughs> references and whatnot that would be worth mentioning before we wrap up or. You know, I think one of my, uh, one of my favorite stories that I tell is one from Heber J. Grant and his blessing tells him, and he, he tells this story to his biographer. The blessing says that he'll be called to the ministry in his youth. And his day, you don't submit a mission paper, you get called from the pulpit. So he, and uh, he's a teenager. He knows other people like Joseph F. Smith have gone when they were 15. And so he gets his blessing and he thinks it's coming soon. Well, 15 passes, 16, 17, 19, 22, 23, all of his friends and colleagues have had been called up at general conference, sent out on missions, and he's just, he doesn't know what to do. And what, he, what happens is what happens to many of us. He starts to doubt the blessing, but then it, it's, it builds other things. So he's like, well, if this blessing's wrong, maybe the patriarch is wrong. Well, then maybe the church isn't true. Maybe mm -hmm. there isn't revelation. Maybe there isn't a prophet. And like, he starts to feel the weight of all of these things on top of this interpretation that he's supposed to be called in, to the ministry in his youth and he's not. 
And so one day he's walking down the street in Salt Lake City. He's thinking about all these things. He's worrying about all these things. And he just says out loud, shut up, Mr. Devil. I don't care if every patriarch in the church told a lie. I believe that this is the work of God. (laughs) And that ends for him the moment of kind of wrestling. Now, if you're a person walking down the street that day, it might have raised the question of (laughs) what's going on. But anyway, for him, it ends it. And then shortly thereafter, as a 25-year-old, he's called to be the stake president in Tooele. Oh, wow. And then shortly, a year or so after that, he's called to the 12 and in his 20s. And then he goes back and he realizes the blessing says, you'll be called to the ministry in your youth, not you'll be called on a mission. And mm-hmm. he had read it as a mission, culturally informed, and then he'd used the cultural markers of when that's about... And, and he got into that whole uh, situation because he was reading it in a way that wasn't clearly, uh, wasn't what the Lord meant. And when he held on and waited on the Lord and found that peace, then he saw that God had something totally different for him. Wow. That's awesome. I love those stories. Now, I'm gonna, I want to ask you about just the different projects here at the Church History Library, but you personally, is there an, another book brewing or what? any personal projects that you're working on that you could tease us with? You know, there, there's always a, a thing that's, yeah. that's working. You're, I mean, I'm always kind of thinking about things. For me personally, writing is one of the ways I make sense of things. Mm-hmm. Things bounce around my head and I have to, so I doodle things on paper and type things up. And so mm-hmm. one of those will go somewhere, I'm, I'm sure. But that's nothing to tease. That's fine. I mean, you know, yeah, no, I mean, I don't have a title or a contract right, or anything to, right. to plan. I'm sure, I'm sure this won't be the last time you're on this podcast. Well, so, uh, I, I would count that as a great honor. Oh, good. So. Well, thank you. And I know part of your role here, you know, you want to make uh, different audiences aware of the great projects they're, they're doing here. So what things could you plug about the church history library or, and, and I must say, I went on this church history tour recently and it finally got me to tap on that history tab in the gospel library. Oh, and good. I was like, oh my goodness, there's so much here. Like, and I'm just, I knew there was a lot there, but as I started dig, I'm like, oh, this is really fascinating and it's organized well and I can learn so much anyway. So yeah. Oh, the, props well, to that. But what, what else could you, could you plug? I'm glad you found it. Yes. Yeah. The gospel library app is full of wonderful treasures. You know, uh, we're working on volume four of saints. And so that is underway. Uh, about is half this of it. The, is, this is the last, last one because I've finished the third one. I'm like, wow, we're getting pretty close to getting, modern yeah, times. The so. third one brought us to 1955 and the and the Swiss Temple. And so the fourth, I, we haven't yet picked the end, but it'll be it'll be in the 21st century. Just not quite sure. It's, you know, some things are just so close yeah. that it's hard to write about what happened yesterday. And so <laughs> we're, we're trying to figure out where the that line is. But another really huge, huge thing is. The Joseph Smith Papers are going to wrap up next year. Wow. We're going to publish the last volume of How the Joseph Smith Papers. It's been, been, I mean, we've been working on this for 15 years in the kind of yeah. current form and then decades before yeah, sure. that in terms he of- finally got through this, all his mail. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's been, uh, so that's been really big. We just finished uh, the last batch of two really wonderful projects one is a partnership with BYU. Emmeline Wells' journals are at BYU, but we've got them transcribed and published on our Church Historians Press website. Also, a huge project that went through and found the sermons of Eliza R. Snow. And these are just captured in Relief Society Minute books and local records. It was They were all over the place. Mm-hmm. And we've pulled them together into this online collection of her sermons. 
maybe the last thing to say in the Gospel Library app, there's a series in there, and it's titled Global Histories. But we've been writing about the history of the church in uh, various places around the world. And they're like, it's not totally aligned with nations, because like uh, in the UK, there is an entry for England and Scotland and Wales. Hawaii has an entry. It's had a, a, it's currently part of a nation, but in its history in the church, it was not always part of uh, the United uh, United States. So, but there are places, but there are about seventy of them now, and there there are some more that are working their way through. And so, this is a really cool place for you know a missionary. You get a call somewhere, learn about the the, the gospel legacy wow. in, in the place where you go. So, and then just wonderful stories of faith, Latter Day Saints uh, all over the world who are. Building Zion. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. And encouraging for sure. All right, Keith, last question I have for you is as you've uh, delved into this concept of patriarchal blessings and whatnot, how has the doctrine of patriarchal blessings helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? That's a really wonderful question. And I think we've touched on it a little in that it's helped me to, to move beyond seeing my patriarchal blessing as a piece of paper or even words on the paper or text or message and really see it as part of my relationship with God, my relationship with Jesus, and my my connection to them. As I try to be like them, and as I try to return and live with them. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, go to leadingsaints.org 14 to access our full Young Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.